This episode of Awards Chatter is brought to you by Universal Television, presenting Girls 5 Eva. Girls 5 Eva follows a one-hit wonder 90s girl group who attempts a comeback while hilariously navigating family and relationships, plus the joys and pains of middle age. The show stars Sarah Bareilles, Renee Elise Goldsbury, Paula Pell, and Busy Phillips. Don't miss the series critics call the funniest show on television. Girls 5 Eva is now streaming on Netflix and is for your Emmy consideration for Outstanding Comedy Series and all other eligible categories. Hi everyone and thank you for tuning in to episode 72 of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporters Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and on this episode, my guest is a stand-up comedian and television host, Bill Maher, who from 1993 to 2002 was the host of Politically Incorrect, which aired on Comedy Central and then ABC, and who since 2003 has hosted Real Time with Bill Maher on HBO. Over the course of our conversation in Maher's office, which is in a bungalow on the CBS Television City lot in Los Angeles, Maher, who turned 60 this year, talks about a wide range of topics his comedic and political evolution, what it was like when Politically Incorrect was canceled in the wake of comments that he made during the week after 9-11, how he rebounded with his deal at HBO where he's worked much more happily and freely, what his biggest problems are with today's society, from religion, which was the subject of his 2008 documentary Religious, to Donald Trump, who once sued him, to the Bernie or Bust crowd, who he hopes to encourage to avoid making the same mistake that he now feels he made when he supported Ralph Nader rather than Al Gore in 2000. He also offers some candid thoughts about his late-night competitors, the people who annually beat him at the Emmys, where he's been nominated 35 times but has won only once in 2014 when he was recognized for his work as an executive producer of HBO's Vice, not even his comedic work. As always, Marr is smart, funny, and provocative, and so I hope you'll enjoy our conversation as much as I did. Let's go to it. First of all, thank you very much for doing this. Really oh, thank it. you. And begin every episode by asking just where you were born and raised and what your folks did for a living. Sure. I wish all the questions were that easy. <laughs> uh, I was born in New York City at the French Hospital on 33rd Street. I don't think it's there anymore. And then, uh, as so many World War II vets did, they took advantage of the GI Bill, moved out to the suburbs. So I grew up in Rivervale, New Jersey. Mm-hmm. And uh, I always say I had the last leave-it-to-beaver upbringing in America. (laughs) Very innocent times. My mother was a nurse. She was in the Army. They met in World War II. Uh, Army nurse, and my father was in Patton's Army. She didn't work when I was little. No women did. (laughs) That was crazy. (laughs) My father was in radio news, and that's where I got my love of news, I think, is it was in our home and I was always steeped in it. Now, I read preparing for this that, you know, and people are going to have a hard time believing this because you're a guy who makes a living performing for strangers, but as a kid, you were just extremely shy. I've read quotes here. You said you were in high school, quote, a depressed loser, close quote, and then said, I've never felt anything as bad as high school. That was crushing. Why was that, and and when did that change? Well, first of all, I don't think that is really so different than many people in show business. I think many people go into show business to make up for their losership (laughs) in high school. I'd rather be the person who went into show business and succeeded than the person who peaked uh, on the football team. But yeah, those were hard, hard times. It is true. 
probably the worst thing as far as depression that ever happened to me in life was being dumped by my first girlfriend in high school. You know, the poet said you have to have the memory of outlived sorrow. Mm -hmm. You have to outlive sorrow once to know you'll ever get over it. Mm -hmm. So there was that six months <laughs> where I really thought my whole life was just going to be this uh, hell of... Uh, <laughs> getting dumped and never getting anyone else and all that stuff. Yeah, I was very shy, mm -hmm. and uh, I always knew I was going to be a comedian, and I was too shy to even tell anybody because mm -hmm. I thought they would say, oh, please, you're not going to be a comedian. So I always loved it when anyone laughed at me because that confirmed <laughs> in my little audience of right. one right. that it was possible. So you go off to Cornell, though, and you, your focus... You were doing the proper track. You do English history. What did you think? You, you, I know you wanted to be a comedian, but were you preparing to be something else? I was. A com well, a comedian. I was not preparing any sort of regular job by going to school. I just thought, that's what you do. Mm -hmm. It's funny, when you're young, you get trapped in these templates because that's what everyone else is doing. When I was starting out in comedy, I wanted to get on a sitcom. Why? Because that's what everyone wanted at the clubs. Uh, Robin Williams was a comedian, and he got a sitcom. Freddie Prinze was a stand-up, and he got a sitcom, made him a star. We all did it. Jerry Seinfeld was on Benson. <laughs> we all... Right. So I just went along. Okay. And same thing with college. I just went along. Like, of course, you go to college. That's what people do. And so all the time I was at college, I kind of was struggling with that. Why am I here? Why am I training to do something I'm not going to do? But it turned out that having a good liberal arts background was quite helpful mm -hmm. to be a comedian, especially one who was going to be talking about world issues. Absolutely. And how, though, were you preparing yourself financially for a life in comedy while you were in college? I sold pot, and I'm <laughs> <laughs> proud of it. I, you could say I was a criminal. I like to think of it as being ahead of, the, <laughs> ahead of my time. Right, right. Uh, and, you know, in college, um, you know, we sold whatever our deal, my partner and I, and yeah. a partner, of course, <laughs> as all criminals do, right. we sold whatever our dealer had. So in college, I think we sold acid and, you know, <laughs> what, I remember opium came through once and I'm doing that on tinfoil through a hollowed out big bag right. or something. <laughs> I mean, I don't think I ever got the opium right. high, but it was certainly uh, popular when they made it into something called Oxycontin. Mm -hmm. But uh, that, when I left uh, college, I, I just sold pot because my, I was leaving the dealer we had in Cor Ithaca, New York and had to find a new one closer to New York City. And uh, selling pot was a very good business <laughs> on my level, you know. Right, right. It, if you were, I guess, a big dealer, it could be dangerous. But I was buying a pound, and, of course, we've all learned the metric system <laughs> through <laughs> drugs. <laughs> but this was still by ounces. Right. And uh, I remember pouring out the pound of pot on my little desk in my apartment in New York City, and uh, knowing it was 16 ounces, I would divide it into 17 bags. <laughs> <laughs> the one for me was called the head tax. Right. <laughs> so now, I believe 1979, you moved to New York. There's, at the time, right. not a lot of comedy clubs there, so you would people would become associated with one or the other. Well, the there other. were three, right. which may be, I don't know, maybe more than there are now. I don't think any of those are still there. Mm -hmm. When I was at 79, it was 
the improv was the granddaddy of them all, of course. That was uh, Bud Friedman's brainchild back in the early 60s. Uh, that was in the theater district. Then on the Upper East Side, there was Catch a Rising Star. That was my main club. That was the hot club at mm -hmm. the time. And the comic strip, which was more for the Long Island comics. I don't know why, but <laughs> that was Eddie Murphy started there, Jerry Seinfeld, uh, Paul Reiser, Larry Miller. That was that group. Now, we all worked the other clubs uh, to a degree, but you had your home base. Uh, so that comic strip was more like uh, Seinfeld and Belzer. Uh, improv was Larry David, I think, and Richard Lewis. And uh, Catch a Rising Star was Richard Belzer. Right. right. Owned it. <laughs> so had you ever done stand-up prior to going to the city after college? I had attempted to do something at Cornell because, as I mentioned, I was very frustrated at uh, being at this formidable play stage in my life and not doing what I really wanted to do. So uh, there was a poetry reading. Oh, my God, this is such a painful memory. <laughs> uh, on, like, Wednesday or Thursday afternoon in the Temple of Zeus coffee shop, and people would get up and read their poems, and I thought, oh, I'll, hi I'll hijack this <laughs> and try to do <laughs> comedy, right. what I thought was comedy. And, of course, it was not what people were looking for, A, and B, I was new and terrible at it. Right. So it was uh, an ignominious defeat. But, you know, out of baby steps come great strides. Right. Now, so I guess that answers the next question that I had, which was just, We've had a few people from the world of comedy do this podcast, and I'm always curious like, how they felt they got better at stand-up. It's something I can't even imagine. Some people have said that it came pretty quickly to them. Other people laughed in my face when I asked if it came you know, naturally. What was your, what's been your experience? There are levels to it. If, if, if you mean, uh, can you actually just get people to laugh for 20 minutes? That's the first very important level because if you can do that you can work in all the comedy clubs 20 minutes will get you stage time mm -hmm. you don't have to be that great and i certainly wasn't but that took a year and a half first of all just getting on stage you have mm -hmm. to wait your turn just mm -hmm. hang hanging out we would call right. it at the end of the bar and then the end of the night would come most times your number wouldn't be called at all mm -hmm. And we all had the experience of going on before two drunks at <laughs> two in the morning. Uh, you know, we all had the experience of performing to one person. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I'm not exact. One person. You did what you had to to get to that next level. So then you're at this level. Okay, I've got 20 minutes of stuff that will actually make humans make an audible sound, <laughs> sort of like laughter. And they're not great jokes. It's not something I'm proud of, but I can survive. And from there... I would say you build, and it, but even for me, I mean, it may be different for others, but even the next five to ten years mm -hmm. weren't that great because you're working comedy clubs, which means as you're living, mm -hmm. which means you're going to towns for, in this era at least, it was for four or five days. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm sure Columbia, South Carolina is a wonderful place <laughs> to live, but I didn't want to be there for four or five right. days. And you're working to people who don't know who you are. Mm -hmm. So maybe last week they saw Carrot Top, and now you're a giant disappointment because <laughs> right. you're not doing anything like that. And on top of that, I was not 
temperamentally well suited to failure. Mm-hmm. Uh, some people take it graciously. The audience's rejection. I only made it worse <laughs> in those days. I just made it worse. And so people ask me, why do you still do it today? Part of the reason is because it was so rotten then. Now that it's so much fun, I want to redeem that pain. <laughs> you know, I want to go out now that it's great because right. they know who I am mm-hmm. and I know what I'm doing. Right, right. Now, not many people get to meet their heroes. You, I believe, regarded Steve Allen as a hero, right? And, and you did meet sure. him at a young age. Not only met him, he really mentored me. He saw me. I guess at the New York club, definitely in New York when I was still in New York. It was when I was about to move to California. This is the early 80s. Mm-hmm. And he was doing a stage show here in California. He lived out here, of course, called Seymour Glick is Alive But Sick, which was a parody of Jock Brell is Alive and Well. And it was basically just all these songs that Steve had written over the years, funny parody kind of songs. And he was the MC who sewed it all together. And there was a little cast of guys and gals who sang the songs. And he tapped me to replace him uh, when we did it out here. We did it at a, uh, <laughs> a venerable old theater in Santa Monica called The Horn. <laughs> And the union came in and closed it. <laughs> because that's what, oh, I'm going to get in trouble again. But show business unions, they do have a way of losing people jobs in show business. But it was something about 99 seats and blah, blah, blah. And we were like, but we're working. We're happy. Really? You're the union. You're supposed to be defending workers, but you're throwing us out of work. And they did. And now the horn is a honey-baked ham. A honey-baked ham. Oh the God. end. Well, so that was one of your heroes, I think. From what I've read, another was Carson, and sure. you were like one of his most frequent guests. That started in the 80s yeah, as well? that was the same era. I moved out to California on The Tonight Show's plane ticket. <laughs> in those days, they... Bego- now, here's where the union... Let me make up. <laughs> let me make it up to you, union. Because we had a union, right. they had to give you a first-class air ticket to fly out when they were... Fly- so I was still living in New York in the fall of 82 when I started to do The Tonight Show. And for the first few times, yes, they flew me out. And the first class ticket was like two grand and you could trade it in and fly coach and make like 1800 bucks. <laughs> okay, this was way more than the Tonight Show was paying. This was the good sweet part of the deal financially. Right. But yeah, I mean, Johnny was great that the 80s, that was, a, a you know, as I was moved into sitcoms and that kind of stuff. Uh, I never stopped doing stand up and I never stopped doing the Tonight Show every few months. It was very good, steady work for me. And did he he always had one joke in particular that he liked of yours? He loved my, my original, you know, we all have the origin story joke. If you're a comedian, mm-hmm. my origin story joke, like Superman or Batman, was that I had um, was a, was from a mixed marriage. My mother was Jewish. My father was Catholic. I used to bring a lawyer into confession. <laughs> Bless me, Father, for I have sinned. Right. I think you know Mr. Cohen. He would make me do it every time <laughs> I sat down. Do, do that, do that one. I, I love that man. And I knew exactly what he was talking about. And I was like, okay, Mr. Carson. Right. If, I think they've all heard it, but. <laughs> If so, you like it, who am I to argue? So you're juggling the you know stand-up and appearances like that at the same time doing sitcoms and a few movies that I know you rather uh, not remember. But. Well, I know I know them all. Yes. P- Pizza Man, yeah. uh, Cannibal <laughs> Women in the Avocado Jungle of Death, right. DC Cab, right. House 2. I was up for the lead in House 2, but 
darn it. It got I, away. <laughs> yeah, I got I got the part of the wisecracking whoever. Whatever. Those, I think that's my main list. So this is what's going on, though. Club Med. <laughs> Let us not forget. Let us not forget um, Club Med. But, like, so this is this is what's happening, and Comedy Central is now a new, a new place on the scene, and... How did you and they first cross paths at, at the time? When okay, well now we're fast forwarding to '92, right? Okay. I first my first sitcom was Sarah, mm-hmm. with Gina Davis in the title <laughs> role, Bronson Pinchot, Alfre Woodard, and Little Bill Maher, as four lawyers in San Francisco. It was a can't miss. Gary David Goldberg, hottest producer at the right. time, did Family Ties. Right, I think it was right between Family Ties and The Cosby Show. Uh-oh. Whatever happened yeah. to him? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, it got canned. Okay, so uh, then I moved on to a few other sitcoms. But by the late 80s, early 90s, I think in 90, I did one for Fox called Charlie Hoover. I know I did. <laughs> I, I'm not sure it was 90 or 91 right. with Sam Kinison completely smacked out on heroin the entire shoot. We used to wait around for hours for him. I remember seeing him in the makeup chair just passed out. Why are you putting makeup on this cadaver? Uh, Okay. So I I just had, you know, had enough of that. And that was a rough period because I didn't want to do sitcoms anymore. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to do what I was doing. And luckily, Comedy Central was at that place networks often find themselves needing product. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So they basically bought this idea I had in the room after I did an election special for them in 92. And Mm -hmm. I said, yeah, I'd like to do this politically incorrect idea. And it was on the air in six months. And that's because even then, just the idea of how politically correct everybody felt they had to be in America, that was pissing you off even then. Sure. I think that struck a chord. Believe it or not, the term politically incorrect was not used at that time. Mm. Politically correct was fairly mm-hmm. new. So I, that was kind of uh, interesting. Mm-hmm. But I remember we had to register the title and, and stuff. And But it was uh, it was a show that, of course, tried to mismatch people on purpose mm-hmm. of different uh, ideologies plus different backgrounds different IQ levels <laughs> it was a designed train wreck and <laughs> or you called it the McLaughlin group on acid right? I didn't but somebody, somebody did, did and then yeah. everybody called it that right. uh, yes the, as if anyone remembers what the McLaughlin group was <laughs> he's still on do you know he's got his that's on the web only oh is he's that he's still right? doing it oh, like Larry King yeah exactly yeah. exactly there should be a whole network yeah ancient okay. guys who are still right. alive Dan and on Rather. the web now <laughs> <laughs> so the the show gets started and before I I mean the format I guess is really while while now you you have fewer I would guess and correct me if you disagree but like fewer total random wacky guests like in that case oh, you would have, you that's, know that's a complete difference exactly yeah. I mean first of all that show is every night so we needed twenty guests a week there probably aren't twenty intellectuals in America mm-hmm. let alone ones <laughs> who would be willing to be booked on a television right, show right. so we couldn't even attempt that and that wasn't the point of the show. This show is once a week. It's on a, a premium pay cable network, and we're trying for something different. And, and somehow this has lasted quite a while now. But, yeah, very different. We're trying to find three smart people for the panel. And what the audience taught me over the years is, do we like famous faces? Sure, we do. Does it really make a difference? No. Mm-hmm. What we want is smart talk. Mm-hmm. And if you sacrifice that for somebody famous... We don't like it, and we will punish you for it. So we don't really care about traditional name value on the panel. We have found other ways to get some name value and some celebrities, 
some years ago, we started having somebody come out mid-show to my left, and I do a, a short interview mm -hmm. with them, and they can add to the conversation when I go back to the panel or not. My friend Ravi Patel this past week. Yes, was, uh, yes. oh, is he yeah. uh, Ravi? No. Not Ravi. Not Ruby. Not Ruby. Oh <laughs> my God, I'm so bad with names. That's all right. That's I right. got somebody on this week going to make. <laughs> Ravi Patel <laughs> look good, believe oh. me. Somebody with an Aztec name. Oh, there you uh, go. I'm, I'm practicing already. It's only Wednesday. <laughs> but the, the thing that I guess is a through line from Politically Incorrect through Real Time is that you, mm -hmm. unlike a lot of hosts of, of shows, are you seem very happy to be the moderator. And when you ask a question, sometimes it's a genuine, I don't know the answer. It's not sure. just teeing up. So what is it about the role of a moderator that you, you kind of enjoy? Well, also the difference is I give my opinion mm -hmm. and never hold that back. Right. When we started at Politically Incorrect, that was what was considered crazy right. and new because everybody in television had followed the standard Carson template Leno and Letterman mm -hmm. did as well. You, They never told you who they voted for. Mm -hmm. I don't really tell you who I vote for. I'll give them a million dollars if I want to. <laughs> And, uh, you know, they, the idea was if you, if you tip that, you will alienate half the crowd. Right. And, and I said, no, maybe not. Maybe they won't agree with you, but you won't alienate them in life. That doesn't happen. You know you disagree with certain people right in your own family. Mm -hmm. When your uncle comes over for Thanksgiving, you know he's a right-wing asshole. <laughs> <laughs> but he's your uncle. You, that's okay. There are things you like about him. and So that was different, and that I continued to this day. Well, what's also interesting to me is that it's hard to pin you down on the political spectrum. And you mentioned that you tell people who you voted for. Just through the years, I've been able to put together a little timeline here. You said mm -hmm. Clinton in 92, Dole in 96, Nader in 2000, only because you couldn't vote for McCain, Kerry 04, Obama both times. Of course, 2012, you gave the million bucks. And then you were for Bernie up until it became apparent that that's not going to happen, and now you're for Hillary. So right. how do you go from Bob Dole to Bernie Sanders? Well, Bob Dole was a sentimental vote for my uh, parents. Mm -hmm. They were the World War II generation, and he was the last World War II candidate. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't have voted for him if the election was in doubt. I remember we had Ed Rollins, the venerable campaign manager, on in 96, and I asked him about the election uh, between Clinton and Dole, and he said, if this was a fight, they'd stop it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Bob Dole right. did not have a chance in right. hell. So right. that was just a sentimental vote. Ralph Nader was a mistake. Mm -hmm. I learned that lesson, and I'm trying to teach that to the Bernie or Bust people. Thank you so much for that. Yeah, and uh, I don't do it with malice, mm -hmm. because obviously I made the mistake myself, mm -hmm. and I wasn't exactly young when I did it. I remember the next year, Michael Moore and I getting down on our knees on this show and begging Ralph Nader not to run again <laughs> because we learned our lesson yeah. that in America, you just got to buddy up to the idea that you only get two choices at the end of the day. And one of them is always better. Well, I love the chicken fish thing you say. That's, that's right. The, that's, yeah, the that's right. If you <laughs> eat the chicken, <laughs> we know your first choice was the fish, but we can't board right. everyone's right. first choice. <laughs> and there is no vegetarian meal on this flight. So eat the friggin' right. chicken. Right, right. So Politically Incorrect, nine years of that, three and a half on Comedy Central, then you go over to ABC for the rest. Yeah. And you, from from everything I've ever read or heard, you engendered and engender a lot of loyalty from the people you work with. I believe your EP and head writer have been with you oh, for yeah. like decades. Yes. And, and Sheila started out as my <clears throat> assistant back in 94. She, we, When we went down to Washington for a week of shows, 
and she lived there, and she was a, a PA, just somebody we, hey, we need to get someone local to like get coffee, <laughs> and she's been the EP for quite ever since. For quite not ever since. Yeah. It took a while. Right. Even with me, this is this is interesting about women mm -hmm. in the workplace. Even with me mm -hmm. as the boss, sort of supposedly, mm -hmm. my name is on the show, <laughs> pushing for her right. to get that job. It took years. It just is harder for women. I, I guess it's better than it was in the 90s, but it's still harder. Mm -hmm. So there's the, that kind of loyalty. Also the fact when the show, I guess with the ABC move, I don't know, when, when did it relocate from New York to L.A.? Oh, when it was still on Comedy Central, we, did, we started there in 93, 94, 95. We were in New York. And I missed California. I love California. So I said, no, I'm not going to keep doing it unless we move it to California. And so it went to California in 96 for the last year on Comedy Central. And a lot of your people went with you. Oh, yeah, they all went with me. But by the way, you know, there's all this talk about New York's the greatest city in the world. Look, it's a great city. I'm not, they're so thin-skinned about this. Like, if anybody dares to say any other city, it's so childish. Right. It's like when people go, America, it's the greatest country in the world. Always people who never travel. Now, I travel, and I've been to many places, and for me, America is the greatest country in the world. But I don't see any need to stand over a Portuguese guy and go, hey, dummy, right. you you know you wish you were in America. America's the greatest country. No, for me, it's the greatest. And for me, L.A. is is the city I like. I, I don't like living in a building. I didn't like the weather there. I didn't get along as well with the women. You know, there's a lot of reasons why I liked living in uh, California. And all the people who were like, oh, we have to move to California, like everybody who moves out here, mm -hmm. in three weeks they were thanking me. It was January and it was right. 60 degrees and they were like, oh no, my but God. It's a testament to you that they would, all these people would pick up their lives and do that. And well, I think um, It's a job. Come but on. Yeah, that's true. I'm sure it's a nice <laughs> yeah, job. People well. like to keep their right. job. Right, right. I mean, look, I think we all get along great, too. And I have the greatest loyalty to them. Uh, so I'm, I'm appreciative of that. But, yes, I mean, moving to California right. with a great job is not exactly the worst burden <laughs> anyone can imagine. Now, why, though, for a guy who knows he wants to be politically incorrect, would you go from a cable network to a broadcast network where you know you're going to get a lot more shit? Same reason LeBron James went to <laughs> Miami to win a championship. Right, right, right. Because, you know, it's your career and you want to move up. We were moving from a small cable station that was on in one out of three homes, I think, and was still fairly new, mm -hmm. to ABC in that time slot. I mean, it was on after Nightline. Who didn't who, give you a lot of support. No help. Right. Ted. At all. Just because he resented you politically or what? Ted Koppel is just a dick. <laughs> and it's so funny. A couple of years ago, he wanted to do an interview with me. He's right. now working for, I can't remember who. He's uh, on the network with Rather and... Uh, is it oh, Rather? No, that's I'm, I'm joking. No, I'm, joking. I'm saying that's where he He should is, be. Right? Exactly. <laughs> no, I think it was for Dateline, one of those things. And he, I said, I, no, I don't want to do anything with Ted. He, Please, would you just take the call? I take the call, and I'm like, Ted, you know, you were a dick when I was on ABC. You wouldn't even, uh, they were paying you $8 million a year. You would not even say mm -hmm. the word politically incorrect ever. ABC was daring people not to watch my show because there was three minutes of commercials at the end of Nightline and another three before my show started. It was the exact opposite of what they do now, the hot switch. Right, right, That's right. what we should have been doing. Off, yeah. So not only did he not... And we still had a very high retention rate mm -hmm. from because it did make sense. Mm -hmm. Here's a show about news. Uh, it's a straight news show mm -hmm. followed by a, a, a funny news show. Mm -hmm. 
Okay, so uh, Ted comes to my house to do the interview, and I walk outside, and the dog is barking his head off, and Ted's first words to me are, well, your dog thinks I'm a dick, too. (laughs) (laughs) So I sort of forgave him because that was kind of funny. (laughs) That's great. Now, the the ABC era, I guess you've called this like a a turning point in your life. It it obviously ended a week after 9-11. Yes, the... uh, yeah. The tragic events of 917, as we call it around the office. And just to, not to harp on it, but basically you, sure. you were saying that the that the terrorists were not cowards because they had stayed on the plane and went... Yes. And- well, I had a guest, Dinesh D'Souza, a, a Republican, um, not my favorite, who, <laughs> who actually said it first. He said, these were warriors. And the truth is, like, I mean, obviously these are evil and twisted people, and uh, I think there are very few liberals who are as clear-eyed mm-hmm. about the Islamic mm-hmm. situation as, as I am, and I certainly have paid a price for that. But, yeah, if you go by what they were saying, which is that they were mad at us for being in their lands, which we were, mm-hmm. and they were, uh, you know, staying with the suicide mission... That is not exactly cowardice. Cowardice would be like, we're going to crash into what? <laughs> Let's turn around. So evil, yes, but not exactly cowards. And, uh, of course, this was not what America wanted to hear. Uh, nuance was not what they were in the mood for on nine seventeen. And how quickly did you realize it was going to be a problem? Oh, well, that, oh, that's interesting. Not right away. You see, as all these scandals go, it takes a while to gin up the mob because the people who watched the show knew what I was talking about. They knew I wasn't denigrating the military, which is what they turned it into. It had or nothing applauding to, the terrorists. Or applauding the terrorists. And by the way, other people had made the same point mm-hmm. before 9-11. It's just that the country wasn't in that mood. So it took a couple of days for mostly this one disc jockey down in Houston, I believe, who was always out for me, to get people aroused. And, of course, once it got in the bloodstream, there was no getting rid of it. And within a week, I still have the headline hanging on my wall. It was, White House keeps pressure on Mar. It kept coming up in the White House press briefing. Ari Fleischer made that unfortunate statement, Americans have to learn to watch what they say, which sounded very, very creepy. But I don't hold that against But this, So this happened September 17th. I saw a quote. You said, I cleaned up my office. I guess cleaned out my office on September 18th, which was the day after I made those remarks. Because no, you that's ju- not true. That's not a little true. bit of an exaggeration okay. because it did take a couple of days yeah. before anyone cared. I think I was allowing myself a little hyperbole No, that's there. fine. But you basically, you, 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 I read a Larry King transcript you did that week, and it didn't seem to terribly upset you that it was over that you were just on to the next thing, right? Well, it was upsetting for a while. It's not a great feeling to think the whole country hates you. Mm -hmm. It's so funny, you know, the fifth stage of grieving now in America, instead of actually doing something, we, well, I guess the fifth stage is wallowing. And then we've added another stage, which is, wait till somebody says something on Twitter. (laughs) And then vent all our rage against them. Right. And then they Uh, have to go away, you say. They have to go away. Uh, So that's kind of the beginning of that. Uh, This happened to the Dixie Chicks, famously, too. Mm -hmm. A couple of years Mm -hmm. later, I knew exactly what they were going through. You know, I think liberals especially have gotten very lazy. Now, this is conservatives mostly who are going after me. But lazy in the sense of instead of actually doing something, just finding a way to pat yourself on the back, make yourself feel like the good person by not really doing 
too terribly much. Making the bad people go away mm -hmm. is how you contribute. So it was it was difficult for a while, and I didn't know what was going to come next. Uh, luckily, HBO was there with the net. Mm -hmm. And you wrote, I think more recently, an op-ed, I think it was in the New York Times, saying that you don't like people apologizing for everything. And in it's this case... so out of hand. Right. It gets, and, and so I don't know if you necessarily apologize for the ABC comments or the comments ended at ABC, but sometimes you... You oh, I'm not. It, a, right? I, I, it's so funny you bring that up because our, what I we call our editorial around the office. It's the last new rule we do every week, which turns into a much longer yeah. rant on a subject. This week, it's about how uh, Obama should go on an apology tour because they're always accusing him of going on an apology <laughs> tour, even though he's never right, gone on right, an apology right. tour. But since it's the last six months in office, well. he's got senioritis. Right. Go on the apology tour right. because America has a lot to apologize for. We should apologize to Iraq for we weren't really mad at you. <laughs> you know, right. we're like a, we're saying it's kind of like the eighth and ninth step of AA. The my name is Earl concept <laughs> right, where you right, make right. a list of the people you hurt right. when you were a drunk and you go around and you make amends. <laughs> Vietnam, we really shouldn't have been fighting communism in your country. Right. You know, right. uh, Guatemala, we should not have been giving your mental patient syphilis <laughs> to see how that worked out. We yeah. have things to apologize for. I am not against apologies at all. And I did apologize endlessly for hurting people's feelings. Mm -hmm. What I didn't apologize for was I didn't say, well, I'm wrong, because I didn't think I was wrong. Mm -hmm. So what's it like working for HBO versus working elsewhere? Well, I think most people who have ever worked at HBO would tell you the same thing. It's great, because they leave you alone. And by the way, they used to own that. It took a long time, but other networks caught on. Right. And that's why other networks started doing well. Netflix. Because they... F Showtime, Showtime. Stars. Mm -hmm. I think they all got the memo finally. Huh, HBO keeps kicking our ass year <laughs> after year, and they have this formula where they pick good people and just let them do what they do. Yeah, I guess we could do that instead of burying <laughs> the people you hire in notes. Right. Uh, yeah, no, it's, 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 a, it's a great place to work. And the process of putting together an episode every week, or 35 weeks a year, I think it is, What's, where does it start? What's the prep? What's the, do you rehearse? How does it all come together? We do have a rehearsal on Thursday mm -hmm. where uh, I get to run through a bunch of the written material that's for the show. Now, of course, you cannot rehearse a panel, um, which is, you know, half the show. Mm -hmm. But I do like to, I, I write a, I spend a long time on that last three, four minutes, that mm -hmm. editorial, probably 10, 12 hours putting that together over the course of the week. So... On Thursday, I read a very fat version of that, uh, see what the audience responds to, uh, edit that down Thursday night, and and do that Friday. Yeah, it's it's a, it's interesting that this show, even though it's on once a week, takes so much more out of me and so many more hours than Politically Incorrect, really? which was every night. Mm -hmm. But there's only so much preparation you can do for an everyday show. Mm -hmm. The charm of an everyday show has to be, we're throwing some shit against the wall and we're going to see what sticks. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, Letterman, who was always good to give credit to Steve Allen, right. to say that was the spiritual forefather of our show, did that brilliantly. You know, made the fact that it wasn't very polished a virtue. But this is a different kind of show, and I want it to be somewhat polished. 
Do you have a favorite part of it? Is it new rules? Is it something else that you just look forward to the most each week? It's not editorial. I like I like being able to. I don't think you can see that anywhere else. Mm-hmm. I, I, in general, I think show you succeed in show business when you do something no one else does. Because if you do something someone else does, they can go to them. But to make a point that no one else is making and do it in a funny way for three or four or five minutes. I don't see that too much elsewhere. I see people being funny. Mm-hmm. I don't necessarily see them making a point that is new. You know, we are not a reportage show. I don't break stories. I try to break new ways of looking at stories. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you do Christine O'Donnell 15 years later. Yes, that's true. <laughs> but you're very good. That is, you're right. Christine O'Donnell, the witch. Right. But but that, that was sort of an exception. But yes, that's right, the witch. Now, do you have a least favorite part? I sometimes, I'm, when I see you come out and, and it takes people forever to actually let you get into the monologue, I can sometimes see you itching a little bit there. That's funny you say that. I mean, how can you hate people for cheering right, you? Right. I don't. But I, you know what I'm always thinking of? I'm always thinking of the person at home. And I, when I'm the person at home, to me, there's nothing more boring than waiting for the studio <laughs> audience to stop applauding the host. Right. Because it can't, and when you're in the studio, of course, it's exciting, and you've been waiting and there for an hour, and they took your phone. There's nothing you can do <laughs> except wait for the show to start, and they, you know, oh, rip you into a frenzy, and then the guy comes out. Okay, so there's that for the 300 people who are here. What about the 4.3 million people at home? Yeah. These poor people <laughs> have to sit through this, and we've seen it a trillion times. Right. If, but you figured it out because you, your thing now is uh, I know why you're so excited to be well, here. That, <laughs> that, that's how I get into right, it, right. right. I've always said that. I know why you're happy tonight. But, uh, yeah, I wish we could uh, spare the people that, but you can't. No. So briefly, just want to mention the, the themes that particularly recently seem to be the most recurrent on the show and the ones that you seem to care about the most. Religion's obviously not a new one for you uh, between the first joke you did for Carson and Religious, the movie in 2008 that you did. But what's the, right now, you know, recently, whether it was having Affleck on your show or going on Colbert and having these debates about Islam, that that seems to be something that really gets your juices flowing right now. Well, it's important. Obviously, I try to address every week the issues that are the most important. I always put the environment as the most important issue. I always say, if we don't solve that, all the other issues go away because they don't exist. Mm -hmm. It was 123 in Palm Springs two days ago. (laughs) Could we try to deal with that a little bit? But obviously, the other thing that keeps presidents up at night is the prospect of an Islamic terrorist getting a nuclear weapon. When presidents are pushed on that, what keeps you up, that is what it is. I don't care what party you are, that is what should worry you, because you know they're trying. There are a lot of loose nukes in the world. Mm -hmm. It's certainly the plot of a lot of movies, (laughs) which raises the anxiety level. You know, Islamic terrorism is a distinct threat, and so we have to treat it that way. And, and you're saying, like, liberals stop the political correctness. you got to get well, with it, get real. It's so interesting that liberals, you know, will, will say that somebody who criticizes Islam is a bigot. But criticizing a religion does not make you a bigot. It's funny. It's almost the opposite because they have this paternalistic view of Muslims that if we criticize them at all, we're hurting them. This is the little brown brother 
view of the world that was so prevalent in the 19th century that we look on as paternalistic colonialism. But that seems to be the view that they have nowadays. Uh, I, the Muslim friends I have and the, many of the Muslim guests I have on my show are grateful that there's somebody out there who is standing up for Muslims being able to live the way they want to live. I, I've made this point many times. When I talk about Muslims, I think Americans are thinking of American Muslims who make up three, four million people. But there's a billion and a half Muslims in the world. It's the American ones who are the lucky ones because they can leave the religion if they like without getting killed for it. They can come out of the closet if they like without getting killed for it. They can elope or draw with someone who's not of their religion or, or draw a cartoon or say they're an atheist or open a lesbian art gallery. <laughs> These are not options that are available to most of those Muslims all around the world. And where are the liberals who who are standing up for those people? It's, a, it's amazing. Apartheid was in one country, and it was a, a complete racial, prejudicial situation. But there is gender apartheid in about, well, f about 40 Muslim countries have Sharia law, and that's part of it. Why don't they stand up against that? Why don't they stand up for people in the world who, if they were not living in a Muslim country and were called Muslims, they would be ripe for liberals to stand up for? So instead you get token-type things like, let's boycott the Beverly Hills Hotel. Right, that annoys me. But not the larger picture is what you're saying. Right, right. If, right because the Sultan of Brunei owns the Beverly Hills Hotel. And I'm sure he's not even aware that he does. He's worth $40 billion. You think he's actually going over the receipt? Right, right. Oh, no, they did not order the gazpacho soup last night. Uh, Stallone used to come in. Is he, is he still boycotting? Oh, my God, what are we going to do? Right. Uh, no, I mean, yes, they have Sharia law in Brunei, as I said, as they do uh, to varying degrees in about 40 different countries. If you really want to boycott, why don't you stop driving? Because the right, worst Sharia right. law is in Saudi Arabia where we get the oil for your car. Right. So the other big topic, of course, is the election. You just announced you're going to be doing Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday shows during both convention weeks. And you and you have an interesting relationship or regard for each of these candidates. Trump, you have always had sort of back and forth with him, right? Well, I don't know about that. He stewed me once. Right. <laughs> I've never really known him. I, I met him a few times just in passing. Like most people who have met Donald Trump in passing, he was very, uh, we'll say, he was very nice. Mm -hmm. He seems to be a different person when he gets in front of the cameras. Mm -hmm. But, you know, he, he did sue me, and I'm sure if, <laughs> if I... If he became president, uh, it would probably be worse than a lawsuit. And, I, and you he know. sued you why again? He sued me because... <laughs> it's so crazy. He sued me, not for defamation, which is what most people assume. He sued me because uh, after he lost the, or he would say won the battle about Obama's birth certificate, <laughs> he pivoted to, okay, now I want to see his college records, which I thought was extremely racist. Not like the birth certificate yeah. situation wasn't. Mm -hmm. But here he is now saying, a black guy in college... Ugh, that's kind of fishy. Mm. Let's see his uh, college records. And he, another class move, mm. offered the president of the United States $5 million if he would show us his college records. So I offered Donald Trump 
$5 million if he could prove that he was not the son of his mother and an orange-haired orangutan because <laughs> we showed the picture and he right. was exactly the same color right. as the orangutan. <laughs> right. So this idiot goes into court with his birth certificate as if it was going to say <laughs> right. orangutan right, on right, it right. and sues me saying, look, I just proved it. Where's my $5 million? Well, it turns out he actually really needs your $5 million. He's in deep <laughs> shit. But, That's uh... <laughs> right. He's got no money, it turns right? out. I'm, I think he really doesn't. I think he's an unemployed actor from Queens right. whose net worth is $14,000 right, right. and also a gay serial killer. But that's just Do my... People any... are saying, <laughs> people are saying, I'm hearing, yeah. you know, I, I think we should attack Huge. Donald Trump the way he attacks everybody else. Yeah, you, have, you have to don't source it to anything. I'm hearing. Right. right. I'm now, hearing... He's a gay serial killer. I don't know. A lot of people are saying it. Is there anything, though, like, do you get a kick out of him at all? Even knowing he's a, a dirtbag, but, I mean, personally, I think almost, I don't know if he even means to be to be funny, but the the thing with Elizabeth Warren and Pocahontas, I have to say, I laughed very hard. He's LOL every right, day. Right, right. I mean, something he says every day is so silly and so dumb <laughs> and so him caught in the act of being himself. Right. Right. He, he doesn't realize he's funny. No, I don't think he has. No, ever, no, it's not I don't think he ever tries to make a joke. He, he, he really is a guy who doesn't seem to have a sense of humor. Right. But he certainly is a carrier right. for right. humor. Well, the last thing is just I, as somebody who watches you every week and really enjoys it, I feel you're kind of underappreciated, and I think that just to note for totally people, right. Let's 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 <laughs> emphasize it. You accumulated first. Well, you accumulated. 32 Emmy nominations 35. before they finally gave you one, though, after... And well, that, now okay. it's up to... 35, right. and uh, the one I got was for being a producer on oh, Vice. Vice. I do not accept it. <laughs> you know what? You don't have to ever give me one, right. but I'm not going to take one for a show that isn't my show. I mean, I'm an executive producer on it. I helped them get it on the air. Right. Uh, I helped them with the first season, shaping it a little as they went from the web to television. But that's their show. That's Shane and Eddie's show. They do a magnificent job. They don't need me. And I, 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 I wear it as a badge of honor at this point that, that they would nominate me this many times and I didn't get it. Is that because I think we're, we do a worse show? Of course not. Do you think I think you that's because it? we do a better show, a braver show. And when you say things that are true, you offend people. And is so there... fine. I would much rather have what I have, which is people <laughs> telling me all the time, everywhere I go, right. thank God for you. You're my hero. You right. say the things no one else will say right. than a million Emmys. So, you know, and, I, and I've you made it, my peace with is that. Is there some maybe assumption that because it's once a week it's less challenging than these people that are doing it four or five times a week? Well, a lot of those Emmy nominations were also for politically incorrect. So, I mean, that's that true. that could be, but it but that that shouldn't no, take that shouldn't take in uh, be, shouldn't be accounted. No, no. And you look at who's winning though, and I feel like the 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 last twelve years or something, it was, <clears throat> it was Daily Show with Stewart and then Colbert Report, and both of them, I I feel like in a way borrowed your format and, and owe you a little bit of a debt. And never say anything <laughs> that challenges their own audience. Right, There's right. no guts in that. Yeah. That's just pandering to me, to, to always say the thing that your clack of liberals will reliably applaud. I mean, I could do that. I know what they want to hear. Right. That's not that's not what I'm, I'm looking to do. Also, I would make one more point about winning. When people talk about winning, we're talking about 10 people watched one episode of their show and my show and all the other shows, and 10 people... 
I don't know who these 10 people are, people with time on their hands, obviously, <laughs> voted for this other show. That's not winning in the sense that when the New England Patriots won the Super Bowl, they won the Super Bowl. They actually beat the other team. 10 people didn't go, oh, I think the Patriots are, <laughs> are a better team. Right. When people vote, it's, you know, LeBron James. Now, he didn't win the MVP the last two years. Right. Who's the MVP? Who's the most valuable player? But somebody else, because they voted. Right. Steph Curry, because he's, you know, he might be the most exciting player or the most different player, but come on. If you had to choose who to start a basketball team around, who was actually the most valuable player. It's funny, that first year that Steph Curry won it, all the commentators in us were saying, well, the, the Cavaliers, even though they lost their other two stars, they, they still got the greatest player on the planet. Well, if he's the greatest player on the planet, how come the other win? guy's the MVP? <laughs> final, final, very brief thing is just... Would you like to maintain this sort of mixture of hosting your show and touring on the side forever, or can you envision a day when you might want to just retire and smoke weed on a beach in Hawaii? I mean, a lot of it seems pretty nice as well. Why can't I do both? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. You're talking to a 60-year-old man. Yeah. Everything is up in the air. Everything is negotiable at this point. I still love this life, doing both those things. But I also am aware that, look, the flesh has to be willing. Uh, at this moment, it's willing. We'll see what it's like at 70, right. if, I, if I'm still here, if the planet is still here, <laughs> when it's 158 in Palm Springs, right. and we have to wear a hazmat suit to do a show. <laughs> well, I hope you keep doing it. Thank you so All much. Right. Really appreciate, yeah, appreciate it. it. Yeah, it was thanks. really fun.